So for some of you, you may not know what Kairos is. Um, I'm the discipleship minister or the groups guy there for Kairos. Um, so I uh, collaborate with Chris Brooks. Um, some of you may know who Chris is. He's our Kairos pastor. And so uh, Kairos is our young adult ministry for BBC. And that uh, ages differ from 18 to 34. So kind of a big demographic there. Um, and so I have the privilege on Sunday nights and throughout the week um, of meeting with our young working professionals and trying to provide and help them create a biblical community that in essence makes disciples who makes disciples. I mean, that is my wife and I's passion. Um, Carrie and I, we uh, met about a little over 16, 17 years ago, and uh, we've been married nearly 15 years at the end of this month. Um, and we met in the Navigators uh, military ministry. So I don't know, maybe some of you are familiar with Nav Press or um, those all stem from the Navigators, um, who was uh, started by a guy named Dawson Trotman in the 1930s. And he saw as he would go from church to church and um, he lived in San Diego, so he would see uh, Navy personnel and all, and that there was uh, just a problem with people not being able to not only know Christ, but to make him known. And they were just lacking um, strategy, tactics, intentionality that would create, I guess you'd say, disciple-making, uh, reproducible type of um, paradigms for people. Um, and so he rose to the need of that. And uh, several years later, when the ministry was really growing and stuff, he met a guy that you're probably familiar with, uh, Billy Graham. And so the NAVs got their, um, I guess, attention, national attention was the Billy Graham Crusades would come through. And Billy Graham asked Dawson Trotman to develop these NAV teams that would come in and do the follow-up to those who gave their faith to Christ. So the Navigators just, um, just kind of spread all throughout North America as the Billy Graham Crusade would come through. And so the NAVs would impact colleges and bases, uh, military bases and all, and then went internationally to um, overseas to China and other parts throughout the world. So um, had the privilege of having several men invest in me um, that gave me kind of a, an intentional perspective about man, we can't just tell people to read the Bible. We need to do it with them. Or as uh, Proverbs 29, 19 says, a servant cannot be corrected by mere words. Although he understands, he will not respond. And so coupled with that of Proverbs 29, 18, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish, but blessed is he who keeps the law. So with that type of intentionality, both strategic and tactical, is where Carrie and I just want to give our lives to advancing the kingdom of God. And so about Eight plus years ago, uh, Brentwood Baptist brought us on for that hope as we are, um, as they brought us to reach their young adults. So um, I've known Roger and just been as a good friend of mine, um, a mentor for me. Um, and so he invited me to come. Uh, he's invited me in the past to talk TNT. I, usually the class that I teach is regarding um, like canon of scripture and all those things. You guys remember that from Dave, uh, Dave Cruz? Okay. Well, our topic today is what is the Bible? So um, we won't go too much into that, but we will talk about a little bit about what Kevin Van Hooser wrote. Um, I have a PowerPoint presentation, um, but as you, but before we get to that, I'd love to know a little bit about you all. Um, so if you could share your name um, and tell me what is the best or the worst thing that you have eaten in COVID. So I'll go with the best. 
The best for me is that I have had Hogwood barbecue and I love their brisket and their mac and cheese. They've got the best mac and cheese, y'all. It's amazing. And their I love like uh, their coleslaw, which is like vinegar based. I love that. So now the worst is too easy. It's ramen. So we've had some ramen days at the house with the kids. Maybe we church it up by adding an egg in it. Um, but that's, that's for me. I'd love to hear from y'all. Um, I'm Kelly Palmer. I think you know my daughter, Alyssa. <laughs> um, and I would say um, the best thing would probably have to be barbecue also. During COVID, we uh, invested in a smoker, a Traeger. So my husband... Oh his new hobby now. So yeah, so anything on the smoker. And um, the worst, um, probably when the girls and I decided to really eat healthy and we ended up being very bland for a couple of weeks and yeah, baked chicken breast with nothing on it, just oh. not, not so great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Lloyd? Um, um. I guess the best, you know, um, about a week ago, um, the entire family came down with the COVID. Oh. Um, yeah, Dylan brought it from high school, Brentwood uh, wow. High. So um, a couple of uh, the members of the ministry, uh, the Hispanic ministry brought some homemade food. That's pretty good, some arroz con pollo. Like, man, I was really Mexican style all night. I mean, like, I was pretty good. <laughs> um, I guess the worst um, is some prepackaged food I bought on Kroger's. Uh, so I didn't want to go to a uh, uh, diner and eat for lunch. So I had this. Uh, package you open up and it was just like beans and stuff like that and it was yeah like <laughs> that sounds horrible <laughs> thank you adam yeah my name is adam harper and i work with uh, project connect nashville oh. already inspired by your story matt thank you for sharing a little bit of your background and um yeah like uh i went to this Korean restaurant a couple months ago and it, it was like Bogogi. It was somewhere yeah. southeast Nashville or by Woodbine area and it was like this Bogogi steak and it was just so good. Oh. I don't even know how to say it but it was ridiculous good and like a seafood uh, you know pancake thing. It was it was really really good and then um, probably the worst was like uh, this macaroni and cheese of <laughs> one of our, one of our volunteers brought and it was just like really hard and just, it was just terrible. It tasted like spam was on it, kind of like what I wanted. That made me hate it actually. <laughs> it was like, you know, like they tried to do the brisket thing, I guess, but it was kind of like the lower class version or whatever. I don't know, but it was terrible. Nightmares about nightmares. Nightmares. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Karen. I'm having trouble. Can y'all hear me? Yeah, you're good. Is there any like back and forth you can hear? 
No, you're good. Okay, good. Um, I'd have to say my best was we got the chance to take a vacation and go to Florida. So the fresh seafood, mm, yeah. that was good stuff. And then both my husband and I started, like Kelly was saying, trying to clean eat and he, he's doing the nasty Nutrisystem. I just can't do it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but I have been doing some gluten-free stuff and I had found some gluten-free waffles and oh mm, yeah. <laughs> I would have been better off to just eat the cardboard that they came in. So nice. <laughs> uh, um, Teresa, how about you? So I would have to agree with Karen. We went to the beach over the summer and the seafood is spectacular. I can't think of anything <laughs> that has been bad. Go for you. Go for you. But um, I haven't been trying to healthy eat, and that's not good because I got on the scale for the first time yesterday. <laughs> and um, the tuxedo cakes from Costco are just <laughs> wonderful. And we've been, you know, really um, grabbing one of those more than we need to. So, <laughs> but um, Elroy, did you say your children are at Brentwood High? Uh, no, no, not mine. Or you mean Aloy? No. Yeah, I got one in BHS, one in BMS, and one in this. So, our children are in the same school. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Thank you, Teresa. Jeff, how about you? Yeah, so with the fall hitting us, I think I'm back into comfort food. So, there you go. Uh, homemade meatloaf and twice baked potatoes is where I'm at. All right. Yeah. And the worst meal I think I've had was a Popeye's fried chicken strips in the Nashville airport. Yo. That was bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and what is your name? Willie? Willie? Is it Willie? Uh, Willie, like my name. Wheelie. Okay. Hey, we're, we're, we're just simply icebreaker sharing what's the best that you've had or what's the worst food that you've had in COVID? Oh, in COVID? Yeah, during COVID. Um, you know what? During COVID, the best food that I have is actually a uh, authentic Japanese grilled fish uh, jaw and oh, wow. grilled um, grill uh, teriyaki ale rice. That's the best food that I've had during oh, COVID. Nice. The worst food that I had had to be uh... <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. That's right. <laughs> hey, it's fast. <laughs> Thank you, Willie. You're welcome. Cassandra? Um... My husband and I do meal kits and there's this, they have different versions, but they're, they kind of all taste the same. Um, it's this uh, like zucchini, mozzarella, tomato okay. grilled sandwich. And it's so good. Like oh. it sounds so simple, but it, it rocks my world. It might be one of my favorite things to eat ever. Um, and then the worst would be a toss up between um, 
a Chick-fil-A salad, which tasted great, but gave me the worst food poisoning I've had maybe in my entire life. (laughs) Mm. And um, another uh, meal service meal thing that my husband made. And there was ginger in the rice, but I think he was supposed to uh, grate it. (laughs) And he did, but I think he forgot to discard the parts he chopped off and like this Ooh. the skin part yeah. and yeah. somehow all of that landed in my rice and nice. there was just so much in the dish that you couldn't see it until it was in your mouth and it was it's it was so disgusting that I gagged multiple times and eventually I had to stop eating because I just I couldn't do it anymore <laughs> that was the worst <laughs> thank you Cassandra Kirsten how about you yeah I think um I can tell the worst one better than the best one uh so we have like this weekly girls night like bible study type thing and one of us uh decided to do whole 30 which if any of you guys have ever done that it basically is just eating nothing um i'm not doing whole 30 because i like queso um but she decided to do that so one of the other girls was like oh yeah i'm gonna bake a really fun treat it's gonna be great it's like this pumpkin muffin y'all a pumpkin muffin on whole 30 is just pumpkin cornbread (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't taste good it's disgusting and I basically spit it out on accident because it was so bad um best thing I think the best thing when queso wasn't out of stock at the grocery store that made my heart happy yeah. that's about it yeah that's good too <laughs> well thank you Kirsten and then yeah. I don't know who the caller is um, on the one on the phone, what's your name? Oh, that's you, Karen. Okay, cool. All right, awesome. Okay, well, hey, let um, thank you for sharing. Uh, it just makes my day. I was looking for some tips too, what what I could take Carrie out to. So, we'll see. Um, let me open us with some prayer, and uh, we'll start the PowerPoint slide. Um, please, you can ask questions whenever. I'd rather this be a conversation than a lecture. Um, so please feel free to that. All right, let me, let me pray. Father, um, just thank you for this group of disciples who, Lord, love you and would take uh, time on a Wednesday night to dig deeper, to become more biblical, more theological, more faithful to you and to your word and to your people. Father, would you bless them, Lord? Um, despite whatever may be going on, Lord, would you uh, help them draw something from this time together Um, that would edify them, that would bring about uh, gratitude and joy. Uh, Lord, is there someone that they could share something tonight with to encourage them in their faith, Lord? So we pray for um, your wisdom, your understanding, your knowledge, uh, just to uh, permeate our hearts and our minds as we attempt to love you with all of our heart, mind, body, and soul. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, let me see how we'll get this. All right. So be patient with me. Slideshow. All right. Is that cool? You guys see? Thumbs up. We good? All right. Okay. So we'll start. Um, So here's my contact information. If any of y'all have any questions, uh, feel free to email me, text me. Um, any type of follow-up, um, I'm really big on uh, trying to link you with resources, books, articles. Um, I love researching. 
Um, so whatever questions that you have that you may be having through TNT or anything else, I would love to join that conversation. Um, even it might be even just connecting you with back to Roger or over to Paul Wilkinson or anybody else who might be specialized. Um, a little bit about myself. So I did my doctorate in biblical spirituality. So I'm, I'm kind of, we'll get into it, uh, but I'm kind of specialized in exegetical theology, which I did my master in divinity in the biblical languages. So primary source research, um, I, I studied uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, Koine Greek, modern Hebrew, Syriac, a couple languages that are, are big for doing biblical studies work. And then of course my doctor was in biblical spirituality under uh, Donald S. Whitney at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So Donald- I love his books. Yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Okay, you're familiar with him. So he wrote um, on the spiritual disciplines. So I've done a lot of research there with that. Um, so, uh, but anyway, so please feel free. Shoot me a text. Here's a picture of the fam. Um, so my oldest, Micah, he's 12. He's the UT guy, hopes to play football or baseball for him. Um, uh, my wife, Carrie, of course. Uh, Joel's in the blue shirt. He's nine. Noah in the yellow shirt. Um, he's sitting with me. He's seven. And little Lydia is five. And she kind of runs the household. So <laughs> that's just a picture of us. Um, love my fam. Um, here are some learning objectives that we'll have. Um, so we want to be able to summarize and interact with uh, Kevin Van Hooser's ideas on what is the Bible in this chapter. Um, did everybody get a chance to, uh, to read a little bit? And please understand if you're like, yes, I did, but I totally did not understand it. That's okay. Van Hooser is not an easy dude to read. Okay. And I would hope to help break down some of his language and stuff like that. Um, to become familiar with the different uh, approaches to the Bible and theology, um, and to encourage the TNT group to go deeper in their approach to making disciples by being biblical and theologically sound. Okay, so that's kind of what we're gonna um, strive for in this time. Okay, all right. So yes, hey, there's a picture of Kevin Van Hooser. <laughs> So I had the, uh, the privilege of him coming to speak when I was a Master of Divinity student. Um, he is a systematic theologian, okay? So um, he, he has a heart for the church. Um, he's recently written this book. Um, can you all see the book? Thumbs up. And it's called um, Hearers and Doers, A Pastor's Guide to Making Disciples Through Scripture and Doctrine. So I applaud this dude. He's a, you know, he's a think tank guy and he's wanting to get engaged in making disciples instead of, you know, just sitting up in the white tower. Um, so I'm really encouraged by his attempt to give us some constructive ideas and how can we engage biblically and theologically in making disciples who make disciples. So I appreciate it. Um, so Let's, my, my thought is that we can kind of just review and summarize um, this chapter. What is, what, is it, what is the Bible? And I think what, if you look on um, page, what is it, on page 30, um, I'm not going to be so copious to walk through this stuff, but um, I think what he's asking is, what does it mean to be biblical, right? In lieu of the Bible, what does it mean to be biblical? What does it mean to be faithful? to the text of scripture, 
Um, and secondly, I think he's also asking the question, what Jesus was asking in Matthew 16, 15, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is according to the scriptures? And that's where we need to interact scripture and be able to give a, a defense or um, a view to the world of who Jesus says that he is, because whoever Jesus says that he is, you know, then we are along with that, right? Um, if Jesus is the light of the world, what does he say about us? That we're the light of the world, right? And here we are, the light of the world in a world of darkness um, and such trying times. So what is the Bible and who does Jesus say is um, have to do with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, the election, um, you know, the way the economy is and the way it will be, you know, those are ways that we've got to respond appropriately to the world. And that's what a good systematic theologian does, because all of you are theologians. You really are. I'm, I'm sure you've been already told this. It's just a question of, are you a good theologian or are you a poor theologian, right? And we all have our days. Sometimes we say things like, why did I say that, <laughs> you know? Um, and then another question is more for the church, right? What uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, who do we say Jesus is for us today? Oh, sorry. You know, so again, going back to systematic theology, how do we respond with the Bible and who Jesus says he is to the world and give an account for how we should live and love God and our neighbor, okay? Um, in lieu of that, does anybody have any questions regarding that in that first section there in the book? Was there anybody that had anything? Anyway, that's okay. No problem. Feel free. Um, okay, so um, here's where um, I wanted to give you an illustration real quick. Um, so you know, Van Hooser, um, don't quite pay attention to the illustration quite yet, but when we're, we're thinking about when he's talking about what is the Bible, he asks several questions. Um, and when he's thinking about it, he, um, you know, he defines the Bible, right, on page 30, um, 31 as Holy Scripture is the divinely inspired account of God's will for humanity, which he says is the law and an authoritative transcript of God's covenantal making initiatives for the salvation of the world, which is grace. Um, so he's taking kind of a, a more um, big approach, you know, and breaking the, um, the whole Bible into two sections, right? He's trying to systematize what the Bible is. It's both law and both grace um, that we see um, parallel all throughout scripture. Those two key um, themes throughout scripture. Um, now to kind of follow, well, what is he trying to do with this? He goes, um, he shares that in short, I'm interested in what it means to be biblical because being biblical is part and parcel of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The Bible is a book that leads to Jesus and helps disciples follow in his way. Okay, so that's his goal. That's what he's hoping to. Um, now, he has some questions, right, that he, um, 
that he wants to break the Bible down to make it more applicable with us, right? So along with uh, giving his readers a working definition of what the Bible is, um, Van Hooser wants to kind of define what being biblical means and understanding um, God's communications, various communications in the Bible. So that's kind of some technical jargon that we can talk later on about, which he's talking about like speech act theory. Um, but he, he tries to kind of enter the dialogue through about five questions that the whole chapter is about, right? And those first question is, do Christians need to read the whole Old Testament, right? Who decided which books belong in the Bible and how do we know they were right? How can the Bible be both God's word and Matthew's word, not to mention uh, Mark, Luke, and John? Question four, may I read the Bible like any other book, the Gospel of John, or like John Irving, who is a, um, he's a writer, screenwriter, um, novelist. Um, and then the fifth one is, every word of the Bible literally true, even when the scientific data appears to contradict what it says. Okay. Now, then who's, this is where some of you might be um, early when we got on to the call, onto the Zoom call, where you kind of maybe like his conclusions where you're kind of like, huh, what's going on here? So he writes at the end of the chapter, in conclusion, divine accommodation serves the purpose of divine communication. For in the final analysis, the Bible is not a scientific book, but a book of the covenant wholly reliable account of what God was doing in Christ to reconcile the world to himself. That's at the very end. You might want to underline that word divine accommodation, right? Because he's letting us know he has a different view of the inspiration of scripture. Um, and I'll go into that um, as we're, as we'll be um, breaking that down. Okay. So, just to let you know, you know, he's, he's shown his cards there. Cause you're like, man, where did he mention divine accommodation? I don't think he mentions it anywhere else in this chapter. So I'll, I'll define what divine accommodation um, is and uh, through the various views of the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, okay. All right. Now in lieu of that summary, does anybody have any questions? Okay. And feel free to, to chime in. Um, he can be a little bit tricky to read. And, um, you know, feel free, again, to email me or, um, you know, uh, yeah, definitely email me if you have any questions. I will, I'll get back with you as soon as possible. Okay. All right. So just in lieu of his summary, um, you know, what I've prepared for us today, instead of kind of breaking his chapter down, is to, um, I'd like to enter further discussion on what does it mean to be biblical and theological? And how does one become biblical and theological, especially while making disciples who make disciples? So I'm more interested in the what and the how of our talk. So I may be, you may be missing some value, like the why question, but because I'm more interested in introducing you, introducing you to the method, the theological method, um, okay? And so now if you look at, um, at this illustration here, um, here's the, the biblical and theological disciplines or methods, right? 
that when we engage to talk about who Jesus is and what does his word communicate to the believer and unbeliever and how we're to go about living in lieu of Christ's lordship of our lives, we engage in these types of disciplines. So this is kind of a helpful diagram. Some of you are more dis, uh, dispositioned to engage in um, some of these disciplines than others, okay? And so I will go through each one of these, um, each one of these um, so that you can kind of start thinking, okay, when somebody asks me a question, what category or what discipline are they asking about, you know? And some of you will see as you engage with others, you know, particularly like our Catholic friends who have a strong and higher um, view of historical theology than probably we would, right? They place a strong emphasis on tradition and tradition that's backed up by the, you know, some of the church fathers and uh, some of their Catholic uh, fathers, especially the Pope, okay? Where we as Protestants would not um, engage as much there, right? So that's where you see the dotted lines there. And I'll, and I'll go more into historical theology, okay? And so ultimately, all of our study of God, right? That's what theology is. All of our study of God leads to practical theology. That's the so what, right? How are we to love God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul? And how are we to love our neighbor? That is, in essence, is going from the text of scripture to the believer to the world. Um, that is what we're trying to do. Okay. Um, so does anybody have any questions thus far? Hopefully this is, if you want me to send you this PowerPoint, I'd be happy to do that too. Please let me know. Um, but this is a really helpful diagram again of what are we engaging in when we are trying to be biblical and theological disciple makers. All right. Okay. So what is exegetical theology? Okay. So exegetical theology um, is from the Greek word or, you know, um, exegesis, which means the set, of, set forth in something with great detail, explanation or interpretation. Okay. So what we are trying to do is um, we are literally, it, what we're trying to do is to draw out from scripture um, with analysis and an explanation of the text to determine the meaning intended by the author and to be understood by the first readers, right? So we're engaged in what does the text mean, right? Now, practical or applied theology is asking the question, what does the text mean to me? Or how significant is the text to me? So sometimes what happens is when we're attempting to do Bible study, inductive study, um, we kind of read into, we answer the first question, well, how is this significant to me? Oh, this just speaks to my soul, you know, this word or phrase. But before we get there to apply theology, we have got to answer the question, what does the text mean? What did the author intend? What we call is authorial 
intent. All right. So that's what it is. All right. Oh, sorry. So why is it important? Well, it's important to the meaning of what the original author, his intent meant. And how do we interpret that? Now, how do we do it? Well, there's a couple, there's a couple ways, not all, but there, here are a couple ways. Um, so we want to engage in philology or lexicography. And what that means is word studies in the original languages, right? We want to engage with original text um, because every translation, and in some ways, is an interpretation. Every translation, in some ways, is an interpretation. So that's why, one, it's important to, um, to try to, you know, learn a little bit of Greek or Hebrew, a little bit, just to be able to look up a word. Um, but if, if that doesn't come about, looking at various um, you know, translations, both from literal to dynamic equivalence, will give you a good conceptual view on keywords, right? Um, so that's one of the undertakings that we want. We want to be able to do good word studies. Another is hermeneutics, which is the art and science of how do we interpret scripture? What are the key principles um, and methods used for interpreting um, our exegetical findings, right? So good hermeneutics. Um, have you guys, were you guys taught much about hermeneutics at all in your previous? Okay, all right. So uh, hermeneutics is from the Greek word hermeneo, which means to interpret. Um, and that's where we see in Luke 24, where Jesus, the word is meant, is used when Jesus is referring about the law and the prophets. Um, he is on the Emmanuel's way, and he's interpreting to these guys what the law and prophets, what Moses had written, how he, Jesus, was there to fulfill them all, okay? So hermeneutics, art and science of interpretation, okay? Then we have textual criticism. Right. So textual criticism is the the science of trying to rediscover the original text. So when we talk about the doctrine of inerrancy, we are uh, we are affirming the original text, the originals. All right. So some translations will use different textual variants. All right. So an example of this is like in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Right. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus says, he's talking about how you do church discipline, right? Um, and he's kind of giving him some, some rules for that. And he says, when your brother sins, and in some versions it says, when your brother sins against you, All right? So there, that's a, a variant, which could lead to some um, difference in meaning and application. Do we only confront our brother or sister when we see them sin? Or do we confront them when they sin just against us? So some of the textual, some of the translations use different textual variants. Okay, now that, that's not to bring about fear for you. Um, that's not a huge differing degree of application or, or all that. Um, and I, at some point, we can talk more about hermeneutics, or I'm sorry, textual criticism, um, you know. But nonetheless, that's part of your repertoire 
if you're going to do some serious exegetical theology. Um, archaeology is important, right? We want to know the social and historical cultural backgrounds, you know, where these texts were written. We want to know the audience, what were their traditions, what were the economics, if you will, like, right? If, if Jesus is saying, remember, the Pharisees are challenging him, and, you know, they say, well, who do you give this to, this Roman coin? You know, well, what was the worth of that? You know, Jesus says, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar, but give to God what is God. You know, what's his, right? Well, just curious, you know, what, how serious of what that was, you know. Um, you know, and archaeology is also called antiquities, you know, type another way of what it's called. Um, so, again, we want to know the agricultural. When Jesus is using all these parables, like he's talking, he's using a lot of agricultural parables. Oh, what was the significance? How much was a talent, you know? Um, just all these things that kind of give us a little bit more understanding, right? Because we're trying to figure out what the author intends, exegetical theology, right? Okay, so here's some exegetical resources, right? When we do exegetical theology, well, we thank the Lord that we have some scholars out there who have written commentaries to give us some of those insights, right? Thank the Lord that we have these lexicographers, that help um, research all these various vast documents, ancient documents that produce the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, commonly known as Halot. Man, I am so thankful for that. So when I do a word study, it's just a, a click away that I can get the accurate reading of this particular word. Um, for the Greek, right, the Greek lexicon of the New uh, Testament, commonly known as BDAG. Right. Then we have like dictionaries about where you have these scholars that do these word studies and just give you a wealth of um, information. Um, so these are great resources, um, you know, for commentaries I, that really take the languages serious, seriously. I think the Baker exegetical commentary of the New Testament is a great, re um, a great um, resource. Uh, the Zondervan exegetical uh, commentary of the Old Testament and New Testament are great resources, great commentaries. Um, they'll help you do good studies. They'll really key in on some of those key words. Okay. So exegetical theology. All right. All right. Let me go on to what is biblical theology? You know, so after we understand what the text means, it is now that we engage in, as a biblical theological student, into a biblical theology, which describes the progressive revelation found in Scripture by examining the theology of its various groupings. Okay? So it's kind of like, all right, we just went from particular to thematic now. We're getting a little bit more broader, right? So what does the Bible say about grace, you know? So the Hebrew word for grace is kesed, and the Greek word for grace is kara, karas, or karis, right? So you have kesed and karis, right? So how do we trace that all throughout scripture to give us a biblical theological view of that key word, right? So it's an attempt to organize scripture, right? That's why it's important. Right, because God is timeless, right? So what he has written in Genesis, 
is um, it's not, you know, what we know from Hebrews um, 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same as yesterday, today, and forever. Like his character is unchanging. So how gracious he is, oddly enough, as some people may read in some of um, some of the things that happen in the Old Testament, he is the same as yesterday, today, and forever. All right. So some of those key themes are essential for us, right? Well, how does someone engage in biblical theology, right? Well, there are, there are various ways um, to show you the, the example. Scholars have been trying to figure out what unifies the Old Testament or what unifies the New Testament and what unifies Genesis through Revelation. Well, various scholars have various themes about it, okay? So one scholar's attempt is to say, you can look at the whole Bible through the two themes of kingdom through covenant. So they're trying to give a biblical theological, the way you can unify all of scripture is, look how God speaks of his kingdom being established in the garden, right? Through various motifs. Look how it's established, his kingdom's established through covenant, right? So what does God do after Adam and Eve sin? And then tell God what he observes is that they are naked. Well, God clothes them, right, of animal skins. Well, what do you think happens there? Does he just make animal skins up? Or was there a sacrifice that was done there? Right, covenant. So some would say the inauguration of the Adamic covenant was hap happened there, right? Then we see covenant happen again, right, and then in the Abrahamic covenant that he does with him. In Genesis 12. So again, and then we see it through the new covenant, right? There's several other covenants that happen. So that's an attempt to do biblical theology to organize scripture in lieu of it being one complete picture, uh, one complete message, right? So how does one engage in it? We have just different variations, New Testament theology, Old Testament theology, canonical theology, which is, let me give you an example of this. So, you know, the, your English Bible is different in its order and arrangement than a Hebrew Bible, particularly mine, uh, Biblia Hebraica Stutzengartzia, BHS, right? So, a canonical theological claim would be, you have Proverbs 31, right? It's a Proverbs 31 woman. And maybe you've heard messages in, um, you know, like on Mother's Day, to be the Proverbs 31 woman, you know, it may not be attainable, but there's some really good principles here. Well, did you know in the BHS, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, that Ruth is accompanied right after Proverbs 31? And in fact, the Hebrew expression, um, now I'm doing a little bit of exegetical theology, the Hebrew expression for the woman of valor is... Um, Eshat Kayil, which means woman of strength. And oddly enough, how Ruth is described in the book of Ruth is Eshat Kayil, woman of strength. So perhaps when the, um, the, as they were assembling and arranging the Bible together, their biblical theology was putting together Proverbs with Ruth, because Ruth was that of which the Proverbs 31 woman is. So naturally, when we're doing biblical theology, what does it mean to be a godly woman? As we read Proverbs 31, well, we want to read Ruth, 
because that Ruth is the attempt of the explanation, you know, so that matters, you know, um, and throughout scripture, there were different canons of scripture, some differing books, but by and large, how they were ordered and arranged. And in biblical theology, they call that composition criticism, which is um, desiring what is the order and the arrangement of, of scripture and books and all that in order to give an interpretive meaning. Okay. All right. Um, I know I've just piled it on. So what, what questions do you have? It, it may be getting a little bit boring or I can't see you all um, as I'm going through this, but is there anything that pops in your mind? I geek out on this stuff. Sometimes my wife is like, okay. <laughs> I'm just still struggling to understand the difference between hermeneutics and exegesis. And I even tried to Google it yeah. while you were talking and it sounds like they're saying the same thing twice. Yeah, okay. So exegesis is the particulars, the words, the grammar, the syntax, okay, of a phrase, of a verse. Hermeneutics is, well, in lieu of that, how do we interpret that? All right, that's your hermeneutic. You know, are you going to include other things rather than, you know, so uh, a hermeneutic would be the historical grammatical. That's the traditional hermeneutic that we would have. Um, or in Wesley's camp amongst the theologians, uh, they put tradition, they put experience, and they put faith in there as a part of their uh, hermeneutic per se. So is, is hermeneutics how to apply the interpretation you got through yes. exegesis? Yes. Okay. Got yeah. it. Um, and so there's some great books out there, um, you know, um, there's a great book, uh, Hermeneutics by uh, Walt Kaiser, who introduced you, the big pictures, and then there's a good book called Exegetical Fallacies by D.A. Carson, they'll give you the particulars, you know, because while we're interpreting um through the exegetical uh we can make some errors we can make some fallacies right um so is that is that so hermeneutics is a little broader um than exegesis you know but they're they're nonetheless differing hopefully that great question and i may have confused you more i'll be happy to email you and uh give you more content so great question Uh, tell me again what you were saying about Ruth being after Proverbs 31 or after yeah. Proverbs. Yeah. So when the the people who there's different, you can call them the uh, redactor, you can call them, there's different ways that people have alluded, whoever arranged the books of the Bible to be in. Um, so they arranged it intentionally. Uh, possibly intentionally, um, that Ruth was by putting it right after Proverbs, that Ruth is the Proverbs 31 woman. So were you saying that's a Hebrew Bible? Yes, Hebrew Bible. Yeah, in the Hebrew Bible. So to have the Hebrew Bible, would it be in Hebrew? Yeah, right, right. right. Like, no, so no like a bible that you know how you we have different um uh versions but yeah it's not a bible that you could actually get yeah. chronological or is it one that you can get and read in that order 
yeah, you do me, get me... English Bibles that are printed out in the same order as the Hebrew Bible would print yeah. them out. Okay, so, that's so it, here would be an example of a Hebrew Bible. Uh -huh. yeah. But you so, can't get them in English if you wanted, you know. A well, Bible. I think the JPS um, may have. I, I'm not sure on the arrangement of the books, but they're trying to do that. They're trying to provide you an English Bible with that type of uh, um, Hebrew feel to it. So I think it might be the case. Matt, There's what one if, called the Scriptures, which is set out in the Hebrew order. Okay. Um, and also retains like Hebrew um, names of people and places. Right. And then... Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I think the complete Jewish Bible, which is also in English. Yes, yes. Yeah. Excellent. Eloy, what, what were you going to say? I was going to say she can get a Tanakh. The Tanakh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. JPS, Tanakh, yeah. Yep. Spell that. Um, Tanakh. The Tanakh. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's an acrostic. For Torah, Haftara, naming, but it means uh, it's spelled T A N N A K H. Yeah. The K H sounds like sound. Yeah. And, and I'd be happy to, um, you know, to send you links to Amazon and stuff like that too with your questions. Okay. Um, Want to honor y'all's time. Um, so, We'll keep on going, we'll press on. Um, here are some resources that I have about canonical theology, uh, you know, biblical theology written by um, Brevard Childs. So he was a Yale scholar. Um, he's uh, probably not as evangelical as what we would be, but nonetheless, um, you know, he, he has some really interesting insights about um, interpreting scripture as a whole in part. Um, the New Testament Theology by Frank Thielman. Thielman. Um, this is a great resource um, for doing New Testament Theology. He teaches down where Roger had done his doctorate at Beeson, um, an amazing New Testament scholar. Um, see, Old Testament, I don't have it with me, but Paul House is an amazing scholar. Um, Tom Schreiner, uh, if you want to know Pauline theology, he's a, he's a Pauline expert. Um, so these are great biblical theology resources that will help your studies, depending on what book you're reading. Like if you're doing a Bible study in Galatians, well, you definitely want to talk to or uh, consult with Tom Reiner, Schreiner on his, his work there. That'll help you see, oh, this theme I'm seeing in Galatians is also in Philippians and so on and so on. So a little bit bigger of a picture. Okay. All right. So. As we, we um, have done our exegetical theology and our biblical theology, okay, now we're going to do some systematic theology. And so basically what systematic theology does, it just addresses what the Bible teaches us today according to the scriptures. Why is it important? It's important as we attempt to answer how does the church interact with culture and the world as it worships God according to the scriptures. Okay. Um, so systematic theology explores the doctrines of the church according to the scriptures. And when I say doctrine, um, I mean what the whole Bible teaches us today about a particular topic. So, um, I'm sorry. So how do we do uh, systematic theology? Well, um, some of the, the topics are like bibliology, which is 
what is the nature of the Bible? Like, what does scripture say about what the Bible is? So certain things that will uh, describe and attribute to the Bible of what it says is that it's infallible, right? Because we know in Numbers 23, 19, uh, for God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he not speak and then not act? Does he not promise and not fulfill? So the Bible is infallible. It means that it is not going to mislead you, right? Because God is true to his word. Um, harmatology. That's just basically the doctrine of sin, right? It comes from the Greek word harmatia, right? Some of these, these words are Greek-oriented, um, so what does the Bible say about sin? What is sin? You know, especially in a world that um, is getting increasingly, you know, there's, we're going away from Judeo-Christian values. And uh, so what the world is saying, what is sin, may not necessarily imply what it is for the believer. And so, um, you know, we, that, that's another conversation. <laughs> um, ecclesiology which comes from the Greek word ekklesia, meaning church. So what does the Bible say about the church? You know, eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last. So implying what are the last things? What's the Bible got to say about the last days, the last things? Okay. So that's where we start engaging in um, what, what, you know, doctrine, what do we believe and hold that we are going to teach our children um, that we're going to teach Sunday school or our small group, or just when we're discipling other people, you know, how are we going to give, explain to them how the Bible interacts with their everyday life? Okay. All right. So one thought I had is when he talks about, um, I'm, I'm, I, I chose to bring up this doctrine, the doctrine of inerrancy, um, because when Kevin Van Hooser talks about divine accommodation. Um, and so what I mean, I didn't, I didn't write it down though, but uh, in a, on the slide though, but what I mean by divine accommodation is um, as God is the Lord of human language who can use human language to communicate perfectly without having to affirm any false ideas. Um, so what Van Hooser, in one of his defenses of um, what he says, what was that one question? What number of question was it? Like his fourth question? May, let's see, what does he say? Okay, it's his fifth one. He says, is every word of the Bible literally true, even when scientific data appears to contradict what it says? So, you know, he's letting you know that Look, God intended what he said, but there is some, there's some contradictions there. But we can still trust what the Bible is saying categorically about um, who God is, right? So he's kind of showing his card there. He's not necessarily an inerrantist, right? So what I want to do is just kind of walk you through, because this can be a heated topic, inerrancy, that scripture is without error. Um, and, I, and I'm getting this from, I think, uh, Millet, Millard Erickson does a good job about showing the views of inerrancy and non-inerrancy. So I'm just going to briefly define, there's about six or seven of them. So this is just more for, um, you know, just becoming aware of, because sometimes this can be a heated um, conversation. 
that um, it may not be quite as black and white as you could think. And then so he gives you um, some nuances about the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, Can you if, say the title again? Because the yeah. picture is very small. Again. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I'm sorry. Um, it's called Christian Theology by Millard Erickson. So, um, and then another systematic theology book that would be helpful with developing your view of inerrancy is um, Grudem, Grudem Systematic Theology. This is a good one, um, and I recommend it. He comes more from a reform perspective. Um, but nonetheless, Millard Erickson, he's conservative, evangelical. He, he treats things a little bit more philosophically. Um, so what I say, just like getting as many translations you can, get as many systematic theologies as you can, you know. Um, all right, so I'll briefly define these. Um, and again, I'm happy to share these PowerPoints with you and any clarification at all. Um, so, but I want to honor your time. I only have so much time left. So absolute inerrancy holds that the Bible, which includes rather detailed treatment of matters, both scientifically and historically, is fully true. So that's kind of the most conservative view of inerrancy right there. Absolute inerrancy. Full inerrancy holds that the Bible is completely true. While the Bible does not primarily aim to give scientific or historical data, such scientific and historical assertions as it does make are fully true. Um, so full inerrancy regards that these references as phenomenal, they're not like exact issues per se, right? There's where absolute inerrancy probably deals more with the exactness of the way scripture full inerrancy, you're kind of, you're kind of walking away from the exactness per se. Um, all right. Limited inerrancy also regards the Bible as inerrant and is infallible and in its salvific doctrinal references. So it asserts that just when we're talking about salvation, um, the, the more meteor matters, right? That they're, um, okay. And I know, I'm sorry I'm being so brief. Um, okay, inerrancy of purpose. Um, so inerrancy of purpose holds that the Bible faithfully accomplishes its purpose, which is to bring people into personal fellowship with Christ, not to communicate truths. Okay. So it is without error in leading you to salvation. Um, and there's some other technical things that I, I could explain again in an email or a follow-up conversation with that. Okay. Now here, number five, this is what Van Hooser believes. So um, now advocates of the theory of accommodated revelation do not claim or desire to use the term of inerrancy. That's why you never saw that in his, um, in his writing. This position emphasizes the idea that the Bible came through human channels and thus participates in the shortcomings of the human nature. This is true not only of historical and scientific matters, but also of religious and theological. Um, so, you know, uh, Van Hooser is an evangelical, um, but he's just not going to, he's kind of, he, um, he, he, he believes that this is human language attempting to explain uh, divine truth. Um, so he kind of nuances it with divine accommodation. You know, he's trying to give a, 
a more heighted sense of what it is. Um, but yeah, and then you have the last two views, um, non-propositional revelation, that those who hold that revelation is non-propositional maintain that the Bible itself is not revelation. It functions to point us to the person-to-person -person encounter that is revelation, that being Jesus. Um, thus, the whole question of truth or falsity does not apply. The Bible contains errors, but these are not the word of God. They are merely the words of Isaiah, Matthew, or Paul. So God is not an error, just what the biblical authors write. <laughs> there. So, yeah. Now, these, these are things, if you get in conversation with people in other denominations, you could just stumble right in this, and you're like, oh, that's what you mean by scripture, right? Um, and finally, the position that um, that the non-inerratives, um, that inerrancy is just not a biblical concept. It's not mentioned in the Bible. The word inerrancy is not mentioned in the Bible is what they would say, okay? <laughs> so just one, that's just on the, the doctrine of bibliology or God's word. We have all these different nuances, okay? So we're doing systematic theology. So where, where do you land on this spectrum? Hopefully, um, the top three or top four would be good. <laughs> Let's definitely talk if you're number seven, you know, <laughs> we'll have a great conversation. Um, you know, you know, love to have, I'd love to see what your thoughts are. You know, if that definitely, if that's the case, love to hear it. But again, Miller Erickson does a great job, um, not making it so much a black and white issue, you know? Um, okay. All right. So here's some of the you know, so you have uh, systematic theology by Wayne Grudem. That's a reform view. Um, classic Christianity by Thomas um, Odin. He's an Arminian, or he, he recently has passed away. He's an Arminian. So um, that's a different sort of uh, soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation that he has. So it's good to read people that are different from your own perspective. You know, it gives you appreciation or it shows your weakness where you need to, to grow in understanding. Okay. All right. And then Miller Erickson approaches it more of the philosophical underpinning. Okay. All right. So historical theology is simply um, the study of scripture by the church. Oh, sorry. Let me go back. The study of, of scripture by the church of the past. Um, the reason it's important is that we want to avoid the previous heresies of the past. Okay. Um, so you know, how do you engage it? Well, there's different periods of time where the church fathers were writing, right? Um, a, a good point about if you do historical theology, right? It is ministerial and not magisterial. It's just a good expression, right? It is to help inform your views of where we come from and what to, to keep on. Um, but it's not it's not like I said from our, our Catholic brothers and sisters who probably, um, it's magisterial to them. It regulates their theology, okay? So, you know, um, so we, we look at the works of the patristics like um, Ignatius of Antioch, um, who was, or, or Clement, they were discipled by the apostles, right? Um, Tertullian, who is 160 to 225, you know, um, Gregory of Nazianzus, you know, who they all dealt with the deity of Christ, right? Um, you know, and when we move into medieval theology, 
um, we're talking about um, Augustine, right? Thank the Lord for Augustine because we had to talk about the doctrine of original sin against Pelagius, who was a heretic. Now, somebody's clapping for that. Amen. <laughs> you know, right? You know, so Augustine did a noble work. So we look at that. And Augustine affirmed the doctrine of, um, he had a high view of scripture. He addressed it in his writings, you know, in the 300s. All right. Um, Thomas Aquinas, you know, um, a notable theologian. Um, Anselm, who helped explain the Trinity much more in depth. All right. Um, reform, the Reformation brought us guys like Martin Luther, you know, John Calvin, Heydrich um, Zwingli, you know, who informed how we do communion, right? How do we take the Lord's Supper? Is it transubstantiation? Are we really eating the body and the blood and drinking the blood of Jesus? Or is it more of a memorial way of taking and engaging with the Lord, right? Well, thank their works because they help progress the, the, the conversation, okay? Um, and then we have the modern period where we have like guys like Karl Barth, um, Carl F. Henry, who help espouse the movement of, the, of having a high view of scripture, uh, the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, William Lane Craig, you know, theologian, philosopher, apologist. Um, and then Norman Geisler, who recently passed away. You know, these men have done great works um, that we have learned from, okay? So historical theology is good after we've done exegetical theology, biblical theology, and systematic theology. Then we have, okay, let's engage with the past, okay? Um, sometimes people get on kicks and they bring back what has already been dealt with in the church, right? And so we don't want to make those same mistakes over again. Okay. All right. And lastly, we, and you know, uh, lastly is applied theology or practical theology. So it, it's the discipline that reflects on the ministry uh, practices, right? So what are your techniques, tactics, tactics to do church and to make disciples who make disciples? How do we get better at it? More biblical, theological, right? So some of the areas of applied theology is homiletics. Well, praise the Lord for that, because that's what we see every Sunday. Whoever your campus pastor, they've been thoroughly trained in homiletics, right? And not each pastor preaches the same way. Mike preaches differently than Chris Brooks. Chris Brooks preaches differently than Aaron Bryant. Aaron Bryant preaches differently than Jay Strother, you know? Some of them have similar veins of it, but that's the study of homiletics that have helped them. Um, to hone in on their craft, to guide the church, and to, um, to feed the church in a lot of ways, um, to give it that spiritual nourishment. Um, apologetics, right? The defense of the faith from the Greek word apologia found in 1 Peter 3.15, right? Um, missiology. Missiology is the study of how does the church go on mission and make disciples who make disciples in a foreign land, okay? And then spiritual theology, that's where I did my, um, my degree and my study in. So how do we engage in the means of grace or the spiritual disciplines that nourish your soul, that bring about your calling in the priesthood of the believer, that you have this spiritual authority? It's not just the pastor, per se, or the pope. It's the priesthood of the believer for you today. So how do we bring about transformation? 
Um, will we engage in the Bible? We engage in prayer. We engage in confession to other believers, right? And that brings about spiritual healing, right? That's what James 5, 16 says. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed, right? Okay, so here's some, some good resources. Uh, Conform to His Image by, um, um, by Ken Boa is a great book on engaging in spiritual theology. Um, Dr. Or Donald S. Whitney's book, The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Um, if you want to be a better Bible teacher, right? Larry Richards and Gary Bradfeld's book on creative Bible teaching. It's great, great that we're doing some applied theology there. Um, William Lane Craig's On Guard is a great book about apologetics, giving you some key arguments, how to defend the faith. Um, you know, why is there evil in the world? Well, William Lane Craig gives you some good arguments um, about how to defend that in lieu of a, a Christian worldview. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I know that I have overwhelmed you all. Um, there are other topics we could talk about. Um, there's philosophical theology. There's all these other theologies. But I thought these five were the most pertinent. Um, but, yeah, I'd welcome any questions um, that you might have. You know, it helped me understand why when you get together with um, different believers, having this chart and breakdown, now you can see where people come in from different areas. Yes, yes. Oh, because just as we went through each one, you, you start to pick out where you tend to go. And That's so right. It could be different for somebody else. So even though everybody's kind of on the same page, it looks like you're coming in differently. That's really good, Teresa. That I, yes, that was one hope that I had. That was one of my objectives that you guys could see that. Where are they entering in the conversation? You know, because sometimes we can be dogmatic, right? So I'm a biblical studies guy, and I'm listening to you, like trying to persuade me on something like, where did they parse those Greek verbs right? Did they get that right definition right? And some people are not even thinking that. They're thinking like my wife is much more attuned to biblical theology. She loves the big picture. But you can't get me there until you've done the work here, the way that I process, right? Um, and uh, she rightly corrects me that I'm being too critical. <laughs> you know, but sometimes I anchor her back down, be like, okay, honey, that's a great idea. However, where does it say that explicitly in scripture? You know, so great point. So glad you pieced that together. I got a question, Matt. Um, that's the church in, in Rome Baptist, um, the 1963 uh, Baptist faith message uh, statement um, upholds the inerrancy of the scripture as a perfect and divine um, teachings of God. So I, I assume we uphold the absolute inerrancy as a church, right? Yeah, that's a great question. To be really specific on 1963, it, um, inerrancy was not a term used then. Um, so it's more on the infallibility of scripture. Um, so Brentwood, um, yes, a lot. We're not so explicit on that doctrine, although m m many ministers on staff and pastors hold to that view. 
but we're just not so explicit on that per se. And in fact, we hold to uh, the 1998, um, you know. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I think there's some leeway as I introduced to you in Erickson's, um, Erickson's view on that, to giving you some leeway within that. And I think that's where Brentwood likes to be, just providing some leeway with that. So great question. But definitely a high view of scripture. Every um, pastor and minister on staff, you know, has a very high view of scripture, not number seven, you know, or number five, you know. And I think I'm struggling with how could anyone be on those lower levels? Yeah. With what Second Timothy said, I mean, if, if it, you know, it says right in scripture, it's almost like a circular argument, right? If all scripture is God breathed, but then that's the scripture that's telling you that all scripture is God breathed, then, you know, for those people that are in. Yeah. Um, five six seven yeah that's that's a really good point um kelly i think a lot of people read into their experiences um you know with just some of the difficulties that scripture can present um as a believer is to interact with believers that are in sin or non-believers or whatever the case may be um sometimes some of those arguments are so subjective you know, and I think always, if you hear someone that differs from you, it's always like, hey, how did you come to that view? Because we're really trying to listen to those experiences that triggered something with them, how they just can't accept, you know. And unfortunately, um, you know, with our Methodist brothers and sisters, um, and I'm not trying to denominational bash, but their view, and this is not what Wesley intended, John Wesley not intended, but they call it the quadrilateral. And so they, unfortunately, in some of their churches will hold scripture and experience on the same level field. And tradition and, you know, rather than um, we hold to scripture being um, we're higher than all those things, because I can experience I may have experienced it incorrectly. You know? So and I'm not saying that for all Methodist believers or anything. I'm just giving you an example um, of which you could come in contact with. Hey, Matt. Yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Kelly. Sorry, I just going to make one more point, too. I think there's yeah, certain, please do. Um, I know, like, my husband, who, you know, you almost can go through these different levels in your own way. I mean, not that you're trying to pigeonhole yourself into, you know, how much you believe that the Bible is inerrant, but... Yeah. If you are one of those people who need to, you know, you, you like you were saying, like really delve deep in all of that. And the more you spend time in the word and the more the Holy Spirit is convicting you yeah. and hopefully through your faith journey, you're getting to that level one, right? Where you, it's okay that you don't understand it all, but that doesn't mean that you're going to say you don't believe in it. Um, yeah. I was just reading, I was just listening to uh, Wayne Grudem, um, one of his chapters in Systematic Theology. Mm on um, the audio and his point was like with Jericho, right? The archeologists, I guess, had at one point dated that and they said, oh, the, answer, the dating was off, but yet they actually were uh, uh, excavating a poorer part of the city where the, you know, the dating, carbon dating and stuff just didn't line up and they found another part of it, which again, people are challenging, but just to the point that we can, if we're going to try to prove everything through scientific backing, yeah. Okay, through science, it's humans doing that science. So, 
you know, that's in error, um, has errors in, in and of itself. Yeah, very good point, Kelly. Thank you. Kirsten, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I really like Kelly's point. And I actually thought that when you were walking through the inerrancy is like, I guess I, I struggle to understand who would sit at the bottom of those. Um, but yeah. when you were explaining that and you said experience, can you clarify what you mean by experience? Yeah. Um, okay. You know, so I'll, I'll be vulnerable. My brother-in-law, um, you know, he, he left the faith um, uh, uh, due to homosexuality. And his fight against scripture is not being true is because why am I attracted to the, the same sex? If, if this is true, my experience is just in conflict with that. So therefore, the Bible is not true and not inerrant. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Sorry, I was like trying to put that piece that together in my head, and for some reason, it just was not meshing. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What, what is the challenges? Uh, what is the challenge for people to believe in absolute inerrancy? Yeah, some of the challenges um, would be, you know, some leverage they'd have, um, like textual criticism would be one. We don't have um, the originals, so that that's um, that's something that could kind of, you know, it, um, that would be one premise. It's not a strong one, but that would be one premise that they would work against. Um, yeah, that that actually is one that I hear commonly when interacting with people. We don't have the original, so how can we really say that the Bible's inerrant, you know? Um, I think, too, there are those people who just don't want to confront. If you believe yeah. it's 100%, yeah, yeah. then all of a sudden, you need oh, to have yeah. self-revelation. Absolutely, yep. yep. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the, that's the reason I asked that question, because it's very, I mean, at least for myself, I don't know how I cannot accept uh, level one. Yeah, good, good. I mean, but the, the thing is that knowing how, where other people come from, yes, allow us to understand how to how to deal with that. Here's another book that might be really good. So whenever I engage in these sort of topics, right, I love engaging books that have the multiple views. Okay, and oddly enough, um, Van Hooser is one of the authors. So here are five views about the doctrine of biblical inerrancy through Zondervan's Counterpoint series. So they, they do a great job of presenting these. So you have Al Mohler, who's the president of the Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary, who holds the absolute inerrantist view. And then it kind of trickles down from there. And so a great thing about these books is the author presents his view, and then the other authors then critique his view after the chapter. So they all are critiquing each other's views. So you get a good, if, you're, if you think of Bloom's Law of Taxonomy of Learning, right, you get a good analysis and synthesis to these views. So you can be more informed. Um, not only being a good theologian and biblical scholar is that you can charitably present your opposing view, right? You can have that empathy, if you will, seeing where people are coming from instead of uh, a dogmatic narrow-mindedness that we don't want to be like because we want to love our neighbor um, as we love ourselves and we want someone to help us you know understand really what we believe and and also what we really believe 
So they do a great job here on this. Thank you. Would Thank it you. be too much to ask for you to send an email with every book you held up today? Yeah. Love to. <laughs> I'd love to. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Be my privilege. Um, also, well, I noticed some yeah. people get caught up on the inerrancy of the scriptures in scientific uh, data that the scripture upholds. Such an example that in the scripture says as the sun sets, right? But we know that the sun doesn't oh, yeah. set. Yeah. But yeah. no, we're already in the sun. Yeah. So there's no, what if it is God's word? How could that be? Yeah. It's God ignorant that he doesn't know his own creation, right? So, but Wayne Grudem explains it really well on how that is from man's perspective. Yeah. And God talks in a way that we can't understand what he's meaning without actually revealing something else that at that time was not making sense to men, but now as science advances, yeah. we're able to comprehend and understand that that's the case. But as a matter of fact, we still use sunset and sunrise in today's language, even yeah. though we know that that's not the case. Yeah. And and when we're doing- And also another yeah. inerrance that they talk about is like, the numbers of people uh, in the census, or or, or or sometimes you know, again, First Kings declares a certain amount of people, and then you go to Chronicles, and it's like, well, talking about the same incident, yeah, but the numbers don't match, and they may be off by a few thousand. So what's going on here? So, but is that inerrancy or not? Yeah, right. Is is would the with the um, with the message really change if instead of ninety five thousand people die it was a hundred thousand? Right. Yeah. So those are the challenges that people challenge, and, and I was trying to answer Willick's um, questions about um, people who really scrutinize the scriptures and starts to look it up on that point of view. Yeah. Well said. One one thing I find very interesting is that um, whenever people challenge Bible inerrancy based on scientific data, they actually have a very, very strong, big leap of faith in scientific inerrancy. Yeah, very good point. Because not just scientific inerrancy on the data, but to a certain degree, the scientific method yes. of uh, the scientific method itself is not without error and people that believe saying that science says that they're actually believing in another religion that basically states scientific irreverency. Yeah. So that, that's the fallacy that I've seen in whole this. Yeah. You bring a good point when we're thinking inductively and inductive thinking is, you know, you're trying to reason from particulars to a general conclusion. And inductive, you're saying it's kind of like prediction. You know, the numbers predict that probably this is what it means, or this is what will result. So you bring a very good point that when people try to make absolute claims when using inductive reasoning, you know, they're really just always saying probably, <laughs> you know. So, well, well said. Well, um, friends, I have to head out and pick up my son from the student ministry, but I wanna just thank you all. You have wonderful questions. Again, please uh, email me. I love to engage with that and send any resources I can. 
Um, thank you for being so engaged. Just made my night. Um, can I close in prayer? Who would oppose that? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Father, I just thank you for my friends, and I pray, Lord, as they are becoming more and more um, committed and interested in biblical and theological studies, Father, that um, ultimately the knowledge that they gain um, would contribute to love. And I pray, Father, that you continue to just burn in their hearts um, for a passion for the Great Commission, that we would go and make disciples who make disciples. Um, not necessarily knowledge experts, but knowledge and understanding to trust you all the more. And that our confidence and the hope of the gospel, that Christ is who he says, and he will come again. And we'll be ready for that as we eagerly anticipate and urge others to follow you with everything they have, to love you with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our bodies and souls, um, and to love others as we would be loved, Lord. So we love you and we're thankful. Thank you for this church and for the leadership and for Roger designing this program um, so that we can be equipped to make disciples make disciples. And it's to your glory is why we do that, to draw attention to you in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, thank you all. And I hope you have a great rest of the night and the rest of the week. So you'll send your PowerPoint and everything to Melissa. I will send it to Melissa. Thank you. <laughs> not, not just the PowerPoint, but all the book that you presented. Oh, yes, sir. Will do. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Matt. <laughs>